In the 1945 classic movie, The Best Years of Our Lives, we uh, learn about the story of soldiers that returned home from World War II with the desire and the hopes of picking things up where they left off before going to war. It tells us the stories of several soldiers, and it talks about their struggle and coming back to work and their family life and etc. And there's one particular story, the story of this soldier by the name of Howard. Howard uh, is engaged to Wilma. And uh, right before they get married, he is shipped off to the Pacific West where he fights the uh, Nazi forces. At the battles in the Pacific, he is injured. He, he loses his hands, his face is disfigured, and he returns home. And his worry, as you could all imagine, was, will Wilma still want to marry me? Will she want to share a life with me after I have become incapacitated like I have. And, and there's this particular moment in the story where he is in his VA hospital bed and she is about to come and to visit him. And as she walks through the doors of his room, you could see the camera closing in and his eyes, he is worried, he is anxious. And she comes and she pulls a chair and she sits next to his bed and she touches him and she says, oh, Howard, how I love you. I will always love you. To which he looks in surprise. His looks change, his eyes change. He's now surprised. To which he asks the question, but you, you will marry me. You will love me this way. To which she replies, well, you are never that good looking to begin with. I love that because we all know how that feels when you are expecting bad news, when you are expecting things to go wrong, you're actually surprised because what you thought were going to be bad news actually turned out to be good news. I can relate to that. Uh, several years ago when our family returned from a sabbatical, and by the way, I, I probably need one pretty soon. Um, <laughs> I, I looked at my 401k statement and there had been tens of thousands of dollars withdrawn from my account. What I did was that same day, I called the denomination agency, which manages pastors' pensions. And I asked them, what is going on here? And they said, well, you called a couple months ago and you requested this money to be withdrawn from your account and you sent us faxes and we have your signatures and everything is saved up and we have all the proof and the paperwork. And I said, but I did not do that. I was actually on a sabbatical with my family in Europe and in South America. I said, well, no, we have your signatures here. I'm sorry, sir. I said, okay. So I called a friend of mine who had happened to attend Crossbridge at the time. He was an FBI director, and I, I, I asked him if he could do anything about it, and I remember him sending an agent to my church office. 
where I explained the story and he listened to me after asking many questions. I asked him, so do you think you can catch these people and can I see my money again? And he said, uh, sir, I'm so sorry. We don't have the staff nor the bandwidth to go after these small crimes. We are under-resourced and underfunded. But if uh, it's connected to a ring somehow in the future, we'll let you know. I said, oh, gosh. About a year later, I was driving my car, going from point A to point B. I don't remember the particular location I was going to, and I received a phone call, and it was from the denomination's agency that manages those funds. And the director said to me, hey, listen, uh, we were talking about here, and I'm so sorry what happened to you. And out of the goodness of our hearts, we decided to restore everything that was taken from you. And we learned from that experience, and you hope that uh, you were pleased with that. I, you know, raised my hands up to the sky in my my car, actually the ceiling of my car, and I praised God for that because I never expected to hear those news. And maybe you walked in one time and to uh, your boss's office and you thought you were going to be fired and you weren't. You were actually promoted. And you thought that once you went back into the office of your doctor to uh, have your doctor read the results of that test that you took, that you were going to have bad news and it was good news. And you were comforted, deeply comforted. You know, one of the encouraging things about the God that we worship, one of the encouraging things about this God that we together come and gather around his table on a weekly basis is that this God is a God that is committed to our comfort, to our ultimate comfort. And I don't mean that he's committed to our comfort in a way that America defines comfort, but he is ultimately committed to our well-being and to our future. And there's something better about that, and that is that he longs and he desires to surprise us with good news when all we expect are bad news. He loves to see the look in our face He loves the reaction in our hearts when sinners who are supposed and expecting bad news hear good news. And this is the God that is here today. The same God is a God that's here today, and he wants to bear good news to you. He wants to surprise you with good news. Uh, We started this series last week entitled Heaven in the Streets. We were looking through the book of Isaiah and preparing ourselves for a week of service that's coming at the end of the month. Last week we looked at Isaiah 1 and today we're going to look at Isaiah 40, one of my favorite chapters in Scripture. In fact, as I was studying this chapter, I said, man, I can't believe we're only spending one week in Isaiah 40. Maybe I'll come back next week with the second portion of Isaiah 40. Let's see what the Spirit says. Let's see how things go. But in this chapter, God surprises his people. And while they were expecting good news, bad news, God delivers to them good news. That's where we find ourselves. Isaiah 40, we're going to read verses 1 through 10. So what the Word of God says. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. 
Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The word of God stands forever. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. Next slide. Next slide. Was there another slide? No? All right, I'll finish it here. That's the problem with not coming with your Bible. Which I, by the way, left in Kibiskane. So we were in verse 9. Uh, Go up on to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold your God, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. Uh, today, I, I, I want us to reflect on this passage in, in light of uh, the introduction that I gave you and the title of the sermon, Too Close for Comfort. I, I want us to uh, think about and reflect on uh, the word of comfort that God brings to his people at that particular time, which is a word that is brought to us today. Uh, secondly, I want us to look at the basis for this word of comfort. So let's look at the word of comfort, then let's look at the basis for this word of comfort. In other words, why can God comfort us with these words? There is a reality that substantiates the comfort that comes to his people and the comfort that comes to us. And then lastly, let's talk about what it looks like to amplify this word. That this word is not meant to be contained. It's not meant to be restrained in us and in our community, but it, it's meant to be amplified and to go out. And so we will look at that as well. First, let's look at uh, the comforting word that we find here in this passage, the comforting word from God to his people that includes us as well. I, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, is a microcosm of the Bible. Uh, let me do a, a couple of trivia questions here for you today. How many chapters, don't put the next slide yet, how many chapters does the Bible have? How many books of the Bible are there? Do you know how many books are there? 66. 
Well, there are 66 chapters in Isaiah 2. Let me ask you another question, another trivia question. How many books are there in the Old Testament, in the Bible? How many? 39 books. And how many in the New Testament? 27, right? Now, you just do the math. That, that was a math question. That was a math question. That was not a biblical trivia question because you're left with um, the balance. In the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, you find the word of God coming to the people. And it's severe. It's hard. It's harsh. Because God is bringing up a case against his people that have deviated from his law, have broken the terms of the covenant. And God, in those 39 chapters, as he brings charges and warnings against the people, he also speaks of their imminent doom. Chapter 1 that we looked at last week is about that. God's saying, you're coming to me to worship me, and on the outside, everything looks beautiful. But when we look into the way in which you live your lives, out of this space, it's horrible because you're neglecting the needs of those who are most vulnerable in your society. I don't accept this worship. I'm going to do something about that. And so for 39 chapters, it's word of warning after word of warning. It's word of reproach after word of reproach. It's charges amounting on charges until you get to chapter 40. And there's something amazing in scriptures and the way in which uh, God tells us of how the world was created that uh, 40 is a time and a period that exists in our lives, whether it's days or hours or years of incubation for joy. Let me ask you this question, how many years did the people of God stay in the wilderness as they were seeking the promised land after being delivered from Egypt? 40 years. How many days did Jesus fast and pray before he starts his public ministry? Forty. How many years is Moses himself out in the wilderness before he's called back to bear good news to the people of God that God was about to deliver them? Forty years. It's like a gestation period, which, by the way, is 40 weeks there's pain at the very end, but there's a lot of joy that comes when that period is over. And in so many ways, this is the story of God's people here in the book of Isaiah. God is coming to the people and says, I know you've heard reproach. I know that you've heard warnings. But the time has come where I bring comfort to you. I am coming now to comfort you, to give you the news that your sins have been forgiven, that your iniquities have been atoned for, that I'm about to restore you. The people who are now in captivity in Babylon, they're already uh, being, uh, fulfilling the sentence that God had given to them. They are in slavery, and God is saying, I am about to turn the tides. I'm going to restore you. 
I'm going to bring you back. You know, it's, 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 it's beautiful that in the Bible that before we hear the good news of our salvation, we have to come to grips with the bad news as well. Because if we don't come to grips with the bad news first, the good news just does not make any sense. And so salvation, that which God has brought into the world, comes to us only in good news, context of good news, without couching and framing First, with the bad news, we, we, we lose. It waters down the worth of that which he has done for us, the work of Jesus on the cross and in the empty grave. Before you experience God's salvation, his redemption, you have to first come to grips that you are a sinner. You know, when I was uh, in my seminary days, I was exposed to this a sentence, this line that has stayed with me and has echoed inside my heart and in my mind every single day. And it makes total sense. It, it talks about the bad news and the good news of that which Jesus has come to do for us. It says, number one, that you are far worse than you can ever dare to believe and imagine. Some of you are here today and you are aware of your shortcomings and your flaws and maybe you're ashamed of some of the things that you have done in the past and you say, oh, I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a, a great person. But what the gospel says is that uh, you are actually worse than you think that you are. But you should also cheer up because God is far more loving and gracious and merciful than you can ever dare to believe and Imagine. So at a personal level, you have to be confronted with your filth and your sinfulness before you experience that which God has accomplished through Jesus. You have to come to grips with the fact that you could not save yourself, that it had to be an act of his. And he was glad to do it for you. He had to do it and he was glad to do it. At a cosmic level, maybe you are discouraged uh, with uh, the news that you hear from uh, what you see in your city and what you see in your neighborhood. There's so many things that discourage us on a daily basis. And we're always reminded that one day Jesus will come to restore all things. But the only reason that he can restore all things is because things are broken in the first place. Now, maybe you are here today, and I don't know the reason for your distress. I don't know the reason for your disappointment. I don't know the reason for your pain, your suffering. But you may have come into this place, and you're filled with sorrows and God is here through this passage wanting to encourage you, reminding you that he has done it in the past and he will do that in the present as well. There's been an ultimate expression and when he has accomplished that, but there are small expressions on a daily basis that remind us of what he is all about. He is a restoring and a transforming God. He is coming to you and saying, maybe you have been in chapters 1 through 39 for too long. Chapter 40 has come today. And I want to comfort you. I want to encourage you, remind you that you have been forgiven, that your iniquities have been dealt with twofold, like as he says in the passage, that your days of war are over. Listen to the last words of Isaiah 40. 
God is speaking that to you. This is, this is deep and encouraging. Verses 28 through 31. We have that one. Great. He says, have you not known? Have you forgotten? Have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might. He increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. What encouraging words to remind the people of the God that was in control of history, that was for them, to assure them of the future that lied in front of them. It's the same God that's encouraging me and you today. But there is a basis for this word of comfort that the Lord offers to us here today. It's what we read from verses 3 to verse 5. What what, what do we read in verses 3 to verse 5? It it tells us of how God would accomplish that. Uh, So if you go back to the text, this is is what we, we read. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Let's stop right there. You know, the original listeners of the book of Isaiah, the original reader and the original listeners of the message of Isaiah, when they heard these words, they they knew what it was all about. Because they knew that when kings came to visit their people in a faraway land, you know, some of their territory that, that uh, was not in the main capital, was in far, faraway lands. When the king came to visit, he would not come on roads that had already been built. And, and there were a couple reasons for that. Number one, uh, they did not want to expose themselves to ambush So you don't go on a traveled road, on a road that everyone knows that connects your city to this other place. Uh, You you just don't do that. Uh, The second reason for that is probably a better reason, which is connected to this passage here. And and that is that kings were the ones that set paths. They were the ones that set their ways. It, it, it was always about their dominion. It was always about their rule. And everything that they did was a statement to that. And so they would build roads, new roads, fresh roads, when the kings were coming to visit the people. And therefore, when they heard this, it was a source of deep encouragement for them because when they heard this, they, they heard, oh, wow. God is coming as a king. God is sending a king to us, a king to restore. And when you continue to read from chapters 40 all the way to chapter 66 of Isaiah, all we learn about is of this coming anointed one of God who we know as the Messiah, as the one by which God would use to restore all things. He would be the one who would not only deliver the good news of God's restoration, but he would accomplish God's restoration on behalf of the people. 
So they knew, oh, God is sending a king. Now, is there something quite unique about the way in which Isaiah describes his coming, as this king coming to visit his people, that the road that he would travel would not be a common road that other kings would build around mountains, down to the valleys, up on the hills, following the terrain in which the road had or would be built. It didn't follow the patterns of the terrain. What he's saying is this king is so unique that he is not following the patterns of normal terrain, of the terrain where this road will be laid. The valleys will be lifted up and the mountains will be made uh, low for this road that will be built for this king. What he's saying is his ways will be established. It's heaven coming down to earth. It's not earth going up to heaven. This is heaven coming down to earth. There will be a new season, a new rule where God will establish his ways among us. And you know where it will start? Where this king is going to come from? Where is the road built? It starts in the wilderness. This road is not built from a palace to the city. It is built in the wilderness into the city. And that is very revealing. If you know anything about how Jesus comes into the world, because the Savior that comes to us, he does not come from a royal family in a palace. He does not come from a court. He comes from the wilderness. This road is birthed in the wilderness. He is born in the margins. Let's, let's stop right here. And I don't know if, you have, if you're encouraged by that statement, but, but I, I, I hope you would be encouraged by that statement because you know what this statement is saying? That he comes exactly from where you and I come from. He is born in our distress. He is born in our pain. You know, many of us, when we go through moments of pain and suffering in life, the classic question that we're all asking is, number one, does God even know that I'm going through what I'm going through right now? And does he even care what I'm going through right now? Does he care enough to do anything about it? Does he have the power to change things, to do anything about my situation right now? That's the question that we always ask. Does God identify with me? Does he have the power to turn the tides? And what this passage tells us is, yes, he understands exactly what you're going through right now. The moment of pain, the moment of distress, he identifies with us. And moreover, he identifies with those who live life in the margins. And number two, he does have the power. Look at the road that will be built. It will be leveled according to his glory. And that to me is beautiful. Because you're sitting here today and you are receiving a comforting word from a God and his spirit that knows exactly what you're going through right now. He identifies with you. And if you want to meet him, 
you must be both humbled and at the same time exalted. And it depends on your state here today. In fact, like my, my job, when they ask me, hey, what's your job on Sundays? And instead of saying my job is to, to open the word and to preach the word and reveal the gospel, I, I, I say something more. I said that my job to, every time I come up here is to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. That's the job of every preacher. That is the job of the prophet here in the book of Isaiah. That is what Jesus has come to do. And what that means is if you've come here filled with yourself, thinking that you're better than others because you have this beautiful moral life and you've built uh, a business or a beautiful family and you're proud of that, you cannot meet the Savior on your road. You have to come down to his road. If you are to receive the comfort that he has to offer, if he's going to lead you out of any sort of captivity into the promised land, if he's going to lead you back home, he's not going to come to your road. You have to come down to his road. And if you're here today and you're completely discouraged, he is just like the last verses picking you up like wings like eagle. He's trying to take you out of the valley and bring you up to his road and say, this road was made for you. I have come to save and to deliver you. All the wrong notions that you have or had about me are now shattered because of the way that I have provided for you. Are you willing to meet him on his road? Are you willing to come down from the mountain and meet him there? If you're in the valley, can you see his hand stretched out to you, raising you from your place of distress? Can you see him? You know, the most beautiful thing about this passage uh, is, is also found in verses 6 through 10. Because uh, the people obviously were overjoyed as they were surprised with what they thought was going to be more bad news, that chapter 40 was, was going to be about bad news, and it was actually good news. They're so overjoyed that the prophet, through God, has to come and remind them that those who are comforted by this word or any work of God should not contain and restrain this word of comfort. What does he say in verse 6? Look at verse 6. First word of verse 6. We looked at first point, verses 1 and 2. Then second point, verses 3 and through 5. And verse 6, a voice says, cry. Another version, it says, shout. You should not keep it to yourself. You should not restrain this word of comfort. You are not where the buck stops. The word must come to you and flow through you. That's why the title of this series is Heaven in the Streets. Because heaven should not be contained inside of us. It should not be just a future reality that we hope for. It should be brought by us to the people in the streets. Heaven in the streets. Do not restrain, do not contain this message. It needs to keep going. It needs to flow through you. Now, what is the message? Because... Um, Obviously, the second question that he asks is, what shall I cry? 
But before I answer what the message is about, I want to tell you how we ought to shout out this message. How should this message be amplified through us, through our lives? Verse 9, verse 9. Now go over to verse 9. Go up to a high mountain. I'm going to leave it right there. Go up to a high mountain. Now, what, what God was saying to his people in this context is when they returned to Jerusalem from exile, God would pave that road that would connect them from exile back home. But when they return home, they should proclaim that which God had done in and through them. And that they should take this message to the highest place in the city. In the highest place of the city, there was Mount Zion. And on top of Mount Zion, you had the temple of God where worship is offered and sacrifices are made to God, the God of Israel. It says, don't keep it in the low places of the city. First, take it to the high places. Now, we don't have uh, a city with hills like uh, they did. As a matter of fact, we uh, live in a city that's below the sea level. There are no hills here. And so how are we to do this? I think the message here is you take it, to all the places where you have influence and you broadcast that message from there. Now, some of you need to do that in the context of your office space, your law office. Some of you need to do that through uh, the enterprises that you engage in all the time through your business partners, uh, and also uh, through your clients. Uh, you uh, should do that in the classrooms that you as a teacher get to work from, to the children that you minister to. And some of you are saying, well, well I, uh, I'm a stay-at-home mom. You have amazing influence over your children and over your family. So you take it to the places of influence, and you broadcast this message. And what I, I don't mean that you should take a big, massive Bible and sit it on your desk, okay? What I mean is, and, and, and you know, please don't beat people up with a Bible either, not physically, I mean, but with words. Don't do that. What I mean is through the way in which you live your life. Your life has to be a herald of good news, of this comfort that God has brought to you. You live to bring comfort to those who are in spiritual and physical distress. You use your social media, and some of you uh, have great social media accounts, but you just got to tone down the hype on yourself and turn a little bit up on the hype about our Savior and His promises do a little bit of that. You, you need to do a little bit of that. But then he says, look, don't just do that from a high mountain. He says, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. and Go and be with people. The gospel, this good news of God's comfort should not come to people just in word, but it should come in deed as well. How do you communicate this comfort of God to somebody who is naked? Like James says, you put clothes on their back. How do you communicate this comfort of God to uh, someone that is hungry? You just say, uh, Jesus loves you and send, send, send them on their way. Is that how you do it? No, you, you feed them. How do you communicate this love of God to those 
who are immigrants. You bring them in and you care for their need. And in all peoples, you share, after caring for their needs, because the gospel has gone indeed, the word that Jesus is for them. And lastly, we find about the the content of this word. So going back to the question, what shall I say? What shall I cry out? What should you and I cry out? I know I should do it from a public place. I know I should be with the people out in the kayas in the streets. He says, this is, this is the word that you should bring. I'm just going to read verse 8. That the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. He's saying, you know, life is filled with beauties and, and you, know, uh, uh, you know, roses and gardens that we're always pursuing. And, and, and for, for some of us, you know, the beauty that we are pursuing is a beautiful career. For some of us, what we're pursuing is a beautiful family. Some of us, it's beautiful romance. It's a beautiful bank account. It's a beautiful body. And you, and you know what uh, the Word of God reminds us is that all these things are like the flowers of the field when the wind blows on it. It withers. They eventually withered and died. But you know what stands? The beauty that will always stands is the word of the Lord, this comfort. You know, people can strip you of all of the beauties that you have amounted in life, but they will never be able to strip you of the beauty of the comforting word of God that says that you are loved, you are accepted, your sins have been atoned for, your warfare is over. And we know that that word can never be robbed from us because 2,000 years ago, 700 years after Isaiah was written and 2,000 years back, the Savior went up to the highest place in the city, a mount called Calvary. And he shouted, she shouted with a loud voice, it is finished. I have brought you home. All your work is over. Your sins have been atoned for. You have been forgiven. Your warfare is over.